Welcome. It's good to see you all here. Uh, I know we already welcomed you a few times, but you can never feel too welcome, right? Um, what I want to do is uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. And as you're turning there, uh, we're continuing our series uh, called Letters through uh, the seven letters that Jesus uh, spoke to the churches in Revelation. So before we dive in, uh, I'm going to ask, I know we just prayed a few times in the service, but same thing, you can't always feel too welcome, and we also can't pray too much. So will you join me in a word of prayer as we get ready for what God has for us during this time of opening his word? Father, we thank you that we could uh, proclaim your name today. We thank you that we could sing out to you. Uh, we thank you that we would be reminded that our heart would sing no other name but Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are with us, whether we're here on site, on campus, or for those who are watching online, God, that you are in our midst. And Lord, I pray that we would all feel an extra portion of your presence, of your, of your encouragement, your comfort, uh, and your um, peace in this time. Lord, I pray that as we dive into your word, I would decrease, you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, this past weekend, uh, sorry, this past week, I was uh, watching uh, TV and, and a movie came on. Do you ever have one of those movies that no matter what time it is, you're like, I'm just going to watch that because they're great, right? Um, for me, one of those movies that came up this past week was That Thing You Do. You guys know That Thing You Do? Um, yeah, absolutely. So it's a, if you don't know what it is, uh, it's a song. It's a based on a song uh, by uh, a band called The Wonders, and it's fictitious, but it's all, all going on during the 60s. And it's the idea of Tom Hanks is recruiting this band. They start from Erie, Pennsylvania, and they have a song that they record in a church, and they, you know, a local um, DJ plays it, and all of a sudden, slowly but surely, this, this song called That Thing You Do starts climbing up the charts. And what's impressive about the song is that it's, it's catchy, you enjoy it, and even though you watch the movie and uh, they, say, they sing it several times and you can watch the movie several times, the fact that you still enjoy the song is a good sign uh, that they did a good job with it, right? And so you're watching that thing you do, and again, it's this idea of how this band started ro rolling up the charts. And the idea is that they want to be called the Wonders, like O-N-E, Wonders, because they wanted to be clever and cheesy, like, which is my love language. And so uh, that didn't end up working, though. And so Tom Hanks comes in. He's like, you're going to be called the Wonders. Get rid of the, you know, the number one. And so the whole play on words is the idea that the band gets really famous. They have a song that tops the charts. And then by the end, there's, you know. One member goes off to the military, the lead singer, you know, is upset about management, and the band breaks up, and so the idea is that they're a one-hit wonder, right? So the song's really catchy, but it reminded me, or kind of got me thinking about this idea of chart toppers, and, and we're going to do a quick little uh, impromptu poll here. Uh, this is something that all of you, I'm going to need some help here. Uh, those of you watching online, maybe write some answers, what you think it is. What I want to do is go by decades, starting with the 70s, who you think are the artists that were the, tar the top uh, of the charts for the most time in that decade. Now, to be clear, especially early on in the 70s, some of the, the um, artists are ones that stopped making music, but they sold a lot, okay? So if we could think about in the 70s, for those of you who, uh, you know, who loved music from the 70s, what are a few bands or artists that you think would be near the top of the charts in that decade? I'm going to meet a little bit louder. I need your help here. What was it? Earth, Wind, and Fire, okay. What else? Who else? Beatles. Be Eagles or Beatles? They're very similar sounding. <laughs> Eagles and Beatles, to be honest, both would be correct. So that's a good job. Um, anyone else? John Denver. John Denver. Who else? Neil 
Neil Diamond. Okay, yeah, these are great ones. What? Jim Croce from the disembodied voice in the back. Um, Jim Croce. I love it. Um, so the top two, because uh, uh, there was plenty of them, but the top two that kind of covered the, the 70s would be the Beatles, number one, as well, and then also Elvis Presley, right? So that would be one that he sold a lot of music during that time. Let's go to the 80s. 80s. Who do you think were the, the top uh, chart toppers back in the 80s? Madonna. Yep, absolutely. Who else? Queen, Duran Duran, Bon Jovi. I can tell like what genre mu music we like here. I love it. What about, what about the king of pop, anybody? Michael Jackson. So if you look at the top two, it's Michael Jackson and Madonna. Go to the 90s. Now, all of a sudden, uh, Michael Jackson is still very popular throughout the 90s. Um, also, who else do we think might be popular in the 90s? Anyone remember? Nobody. That shows you how good the music was in the 90s, right? Um, so Celine Dion was super popular, right? And what was interesting is uh, a lot of soundtracks became popular, like chart toppers. So you think about, like, Can You Feel the Love Tonight by Elton John. You think about um, Whitney Houston, her song from The Bodyguard. Uh, you start thinking about um, My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion from Titanic. So, so soundtracks became really big in the 90s, and then boy bands as well. The 2000s, uh, the top chart topper was Eminem the whole time, pretty much. And the 2010s, uh, it was Rihanna and Drake. So based on your desire for music, maybe you say it got better, maybe you say it got worse, but uh, we think about who are the, the chart toppers by decade. The reason we're bringing this up, because it's like, what does this have to do with Revelation? The reason we're bringing this up is because we live in a society, in a world, specifically in our culture in America, where we want to top the charts, right? We want to be the best. We want to win the race. We want to be first or else it's nothing. And so what ends up creating is that that can give us a lot of drive and a lot of ambition, which is awesome and it can be great and it can spur us on to great things. But what it can also do, if we're not careful, is that if we want to always be the first and the best and the top, there can be a time in which if we're not the first, we're not the best, and we're not the top, that we can end up getting really discouraged. That one way we look at it is that is the American dream is kind of this idea of, of someone who comes from nowhere and through their hard work, their perseverance, through gifts and talents are able to then become, you know, something. They make something of themselves and they made it out of nothing. And, and what ends up happening is that we celebrate those stories. So all of us look at our lives and say, how do I make myself something? How do I get to the top of the charts? How do I make myself first? How do I win? And it kind of, there's this picture of this, our culture wants us to promote this upward mobility, this idea we want to keep moving up. And we saw that with the wonders, the one-hit wonders. They had their song move up, and then it crashed. How many of us try so hard to make ourselves the top that we don't realize what we sacrifice in the midst of trying to get there. Where we tear other people down, we start losing sight of what's important, we ignore our family, we focus so much on our bottom line that we miss the main thing being the main thing. So I'm gonna give a, just a very simplistic example of what uh, upward mobility, a chart, that not the musical charts, but two different charts inside your notes. Um, one of them, focusing on this idea of upward mobility. And the first one is this idea of clip charts. So clip charts are things that I learned about um, having an elementary school, uh, two elementary school age girls now, where you 
it's inside the classroom, and it's a, it's a way to kind of help um, behavior, training habits, and things like that. And I'm going to give a picture of an example for, for you all to be able to look at. And as you look here, you're going to be able to see that it's color-coded um, all here. And if you can't see from here, I'll, I'll describe it. Right here is green. And it says ready to learn, and all the different names are here. In this case, they're magnets. Uh, at Shaylin's school uh, in the past, there's been little clips with their name on it. But it's the idea of ready to learn. And based on your decisions that day, based on your actions, based on if you did a, made a good choice or a poor choice, whatever that looks like, you would either have your clip moved up, which blue is you're having a good day, purple is you're doing a great job, you know, pink is like you're outstanding, or if you make bad choices, then yellow means, hey, you have to think about it. Like, think about what you're doing. Orange is the one where it's the teacher's choice, and then red is its apparent contact. So here's, here's why we bring it up, because using a tool like this inside of a classroom, I, I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm saying that subconsciously what it creates within us and, and, and our kids is this idea that we're trying to rank ourselves, that we're trying to compete, that we're trying to be better than the other one, that we're trying to have upward mobility in order to be the best, to be the top, and to be first. So... Shaylin and I and Elise were talking about this the other day, and one of the things that Shaylin said is, you know, sometimes, you know, we're talking about clip charts, she's like, you know, sometimes kids just need motivation. And I'm like, honey, sometimes adults do too. <laughs> and so as much as I'm sure there'd be days where you guys wish you can give a clip chart to me, we're not passing those out at the end of service. Um, but this idea of we, we kind of, we, we need motivation, and sometimes the motivation comes from wanting to be up top. So just a couple of brief ideas that we learned from clip charts. The first one, an upward mobility. First is that we move up and down in your notes based on our actions. We're, we're, we're judged by our performance. Did we do a good job? Did we answer the question correctly for the teacher? I'm moving up. Did you talk out of turn? You're moving down. Did, did, I, did I, you know, encourage someone in my classroom? Oh, you're moving up. Did I... But was I a bully? I'm, I'm moving pretty far down. Are you lifting other people up inside your workplace? Are you encouraging them in the midst of a discouraging season? You move up. Are you allowing the pain and the, and the frustration in your life to, to then spill out onto others? You're moving down. Are you diving into God's word and letting it permeate you and, and marinate in your soul so that the overflow of your life comes from the inflow of God's word? You're moving up. Does it feel like your time in God's word is dry or non-existent? You're moving down. See, we get this idea that our, our movement, our upward mobility is based on our actions or on our performance. Two, the other thing that we see here when we look at clip charts is that we start to see others in your notes as competition. That at Shaylin's old school, if you got higher up there, you'd get rewards and you'd get stickers or you'd get jewels or, you know, whatever different rewards that, that, you know, kids need, that adults need too. But you start to look and you say, oh man, okay, so, you know, JP always makes a bunch of bad decisions. Like, oh, we don't know if we could trust him, but Stephanie, she makes a lot of really good ones. She's outstanding, right? That's real life. You know what I mean? Um, but that's the idea of looking at people and you start to say, oh, we start to form opinions about other people. Right? We start to think, oh, that person never really has it together. That person, you know, they're not really, you know, maybe they're hurting, but all I see is that they're moving down the chart. They're not doing what they should be doing, and it creates competition, make us feel like if we're looking up at the charts, it often means we're looking down on other people. 
And then it creates this idea that we need to be better than someone else. And we're willing to sacrifice integrity in order to get a better grade, in order to make another sale, in order to succeed at work, in order to do these different things, because we think upward mobility is worth the sacrifice of our integrity. And if we, if we fall into that trap, we see others as competition. And then that brings us to our last point, which is that we think that rewards come only when we are at the top. That if you're down in the clip chart near the bottom, you're not getting a reward. We start to think it's only through upward mobility that we're going to get, you know, stickers or jewels if you're in class in elementary school. Or to get a raise, to get financial compensation, or in order to get attaboys or girls from people, the affirmation of people or to be able to just have the stuff that you want. I mean, whatever it is, we think that rewards only come when we're at the top, we're at the best, when we win, excuse me, win the race. We bring all this up because as we look at Philadelphia, which is in Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13, we're going to look at a church that's one of only two churches in this seven church section of Revelation that doesn't get any condemnation or any um, admon- admonishment from the from Jesus. He, he, this is one of the only two churches that gets only good things. And so we picture them that they'd be at the top, that Jesus would list out all the great things. Look, you have this that you do. You have this that you do. You have this that you do, that you're, you're moving up the charts based on your actions and that, you know, you start to do really well. But let's look at the scripture because we start to see a little bit of a shift from this upward mobility that we tend to think that is so prevalent or we see through this idea of a clip chart. And we start to look at a different way of looking at rewards, at others, and at ourselves. So let's read Revelation 3, verse 7 through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I place before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of tribulation that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who's victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of my, of, excuse me, of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's unpack a couple of things there. The first one is, you know, Jesus introduces himself differently to each of the churches. In this case, he introduces himself as the holy and the true. Holy talks about how he's, God, like he's set apart. He is perfect. He is, um, the, literally the word holy is just set apart. But this idea that he is completely holy. He is God who came down in flesh. And what he says is true because we know where he comes from, because he is holy. And we're called to be holy as our heavenly father is holy, which is a, a hard calling, but we can follow Jesus and his example to become more like Christ. He is holy. He is set apart. He is fully God. And then we also have this idea that he is true. Not just that he speaks truth, 
but that he is true. There's an important distinction there because we know people who can say a true thing, but because of their lack of integrity or their lack of character or, or because we just inherently don't trust them for whatever reason, they may say a true thing, but we won't take it as truth. Whereas there, Jesus is saying he says true things, but it overflows from the fact that he is true. He's the real deal. There's no there's no counterfeit. There's no question. He is true. So when Jesus is speaking and he's saying, I'm holy, I'm set apart, and I am true, we listen to what he has to say to the church in Philadelphia. The next thing he talks about is how he holds the key of David. The key of David was something that was uh, brought back to Isaiah 22, verses 22 and 23. If you want to make a little footnote there, Isaiah 22, 22 through 23. And it's the story of this uh, administrator in the temple that was a bad one. And then a good one came in that God instituted uh, an administrator named Eliakim. And he was given the keys to David's house. And it talks about he was put upon his shoulder, uh, the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will become a seat of honor for the house of his father. And, and this started to become a, um, uh, a prophecy or, or something that the Messiah would fill, that the Messiah would be the one who, what he opens, no one would shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And that he'd be able to... Um, create this place so that the keys of entering into God's place would be through this Messiah. And so Jesus fulfills this because he is the door, right? But then he also is the one that what he opens, no one can shut. That he opens the eyes of the blind. He opens the mouths of the mute. He opens the ears of the deaf. And he opens the way to the Holy of Holies by breaking the, the curtain or the veil that was separating God from his people in the temple was shattered or torn rather the moment that Jesus died on the cross. He opened those things and those things cannot be shut again. And he shuts that which cannot, or what he shuts cannot be open. So he shuts the mouths of the demons and he says, no, you don't get to tell them who I am. And so instead they are silenced. They flee and they go inside pigs and fall over the cliff. See, Jesus has the power to open and to shut and he's opened the door for us to have right relationship with him. The next time we see door mentioned in Revelation is Revelation 3.20. It's a verse that we'll talk about in a few weeks. But the idea that Jesus saying, I stand at the door and knock. And whoever lets me in will have fellowship together. So we have the opportunity that Jesus opened the door to have a relationship, to have fellowship with him and his father. He opened that door on the cross at Calvary and it cannot be shut. The opportunity is always available and we need to walk into that rather than wait until a time later on. We, we need to acknowledge that his door for our relationship with him is always open. Now, I'm going to pivot a bit because we've, we've done a, a couple of text things here, but what I want to look at for the last few minutes we have together isn't the idea of the, of the clip charts that's upward mobility. It's this idea of sticker charts, so another kind of chart that doesn't focus on upward mobility, but forward stability or moving forward consistently. So there's a sticker chart example um, that we have here, and again, if you could see it, um, You'll be able to uh, look at it here in person. If not, I'll explain it. This is specifically for a sleep chart because uh, Shaylin um, had a hard time sleeping when she was younger. Elise is kind of going through that right now. So we wanted to be able to create something where, you know, if you sleep 
in your own bed and you don't wake any of us up, then you get, you get a sticker, right? And so all of a sudden you kind of add them up. And then if you have several days in a row, then, you know, maybe you get, uh, you know, Shaylin really wanted to, to get like, like a bouncy ball. I don't know why. That's just her thing that she would get. Uh, this past week, uh, Elise started sleeping better. And so we ended up getting her um, like a little toy from Target for a few dollars. And so I get that rewards isn't always the best way to teach things, right? Like we're not still giving Shaylin a sleep chart because she sleeps sleeps well now, right? But it helps because as Shaylin says, sometimes kids and adults need a little motivation. And so there's these rewards that we see. And here's the contrast between the sticker chart and the clip chart. A sticker chart is that we don't move up and down. We move forward one step at a time that our actions help us to take a step forward, to progress, to not thinking about, oh, I'm comparing myself to other people and to not think about, oh, you know, every day is crazy. It's, hey, when it comes to our walk with Jesus, we're not called to be perfect and make perfect decisions every time because we know that we fall short. But are we taking one step closer to him every day or are we taking one step further away? Are we having forward mobility or are we being stagnant or are we reversing course? So this idea that we don't move up and down, we move forward one step at a time. In the Church of Philadelphia, the reason we see this here is they were, um, they were a church that you would look at like, oh, they would start to, maybe Jesus is because he's got to be at the top of the clip chart for the Philadelphia because look, they, they're one of the only two that don't get um, reprimanded. But look at what he says in verse 8. He doesn't list out all the good things that they did. He says, I know your deeds. And that's it. He says, I know your deeds. He says, you've got a, a little strength, but I know your deeds. And it's last, last week we looked at Thyatira and it says, I know your love. I know your perseverance. I know your good works. In fact, your works are better now than they were before. And so you would look at a sticker or a, a clip chart and you might think, oh, Thyatira is moving up. And then he says, but I have this against you. And then they move down. Philadelphia, it's not about moving up or comparing. He just says, I know your deeds. Here's what you do. You have a little strength. The word verse eight for strength is this word dunamis, which is the word where we get dynamite from. So it's, it's just a little strength, but we know in the same way that a little diamond, dynamite can make, have a big repercussions, that a little bit of strength when it's put in Jesus can have a big impact. A little bit of strength is enough to make an impact for the gospel. Then we see in verse 10, as we continue on, that he talks about how you've kept my command to endure patiently. That because they kept the command, they'd be kept from the hour of trial. Now, I don't know why. I don't know why Philadelphia is a church that doesn't get reprimanded. Jesus says, I'm going to keep you and take you from the hour of trial. And I don't know why Smyrna is the other one that doesn't get reprimanded. And Smyrna is told you're going to go through 10 days of persecution. I don't know why when we follow God, some people are able to have prayers answered in a way that it seems like God might love them more or, or might feel like that God is answering their prayers better or that they uh, escape different difficulties. Whereas there are some that go through hard times and the 10 days of persecution may as well be a lifetime of difficulty. And I don't know why that is, but I know that Jesus is with both people. It's embodied in Daniel. How come Daniel gets rescued from the lion's den? And how come Stephen in Acts 7 gets stoned and martyred? 
Both of those ended up glorifying God. But we all want the Daniel story. And we struggle when we experience the Stephen story. We don't know why, but here's what Jesus says. Because you are enduring patiently. Here are the two things that, they, that he says in verse 8. He says that you have a little strength, but you've kept my word and you have not denied my name. That's all it takes. That's, that's all he's focusing on. He's saying, you have been faithful. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. And if we keep his word and we deny, don't deny his name, there are some days we're going to have good days. We're moving up the clip chart. The other days we're going to have bad days. We're moving down the clip chart. But the point here is that there's only two stickers in order to get the reward from Jesus as we see in Philadelphia. Keep his word. Don't deny his name. And then you can add to that, use what little strength we have to remain faithful to him. It's not about our actions. It's about moving forward one step at a time. The other point that we see is that they did not, it wasn't about the size of their church, all the lists of their good deeds. They were rewarded because they were faithful. The next point is that we see others not as competition. We don't compare. We see others as companions on the journey. We see that when it comes to the sleep chart that we saw up there, it's not like my name's on there too. And so if I get much better sleep than, than the girls do that I win, right? It's we all get to come alongside and say, Shaylin, you're doing great. You're doing a great sleeper. Or at least you're doing so well. We're so proud of you. We're able to come alongside one another. And it's all about not us competing with other people and following Jesus. It's about us progressing and competing with our best self to become who God has created us to be, to be more Christ-like every single day. And so we don't hold ourselves to the standards of other people. We hold ourselves as to who has God called us to be. Some days we'll do well. Other days we'll struggle. But we can do forward mobility one step, one day at a time that we're all on the same page. Verse 13 shows us this, this idea that whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does that mean? That means that this letter that was sent through John, that Jesus told John through a vision, John wrote it out. All these seven churches read all the different letters in addition to the rest of the book of Revelation. And so every church would look at how other churches were being admonished, encouraged, challenged. And at the end of every one of the seven churches, there's, Jesus has this, this encouragement, this challenge to listen to whatever the Spirit says to the other churches. What does that mean? means that we're learning lessons from other people. We're coming alongside. But that there, does, there need not be sibling rivalry amongst God's children. We don't need to have division amongst God's children. That it's really easy to see what other churches are doing or to see whatever business you're in or whatever, you know, for, if you're in school, what other classmates are doing. It's easy to look at others and compare and then want to compete but how much more beautiful it is when we look at other churches and say, man, praise God that that church down the street is doing incredible things. Praise God that that church up the freeway is just it's changing lives through the power of the gospel. That's one of the reasons why we pray San Diego is such a great thing because it's churches coming together, not under the banner of a church name, but under God's banner of love to be able to build his kingdom, to come along together, that we see people as companions on the journey. That the sleep chart, we're all encouraging one another to progressively move forward in our walk with God. We're not saying I'm better than you. We're not looking up at the charts and looking down at our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And then lastly, 
looking at the sticker chart idea of not upward mobility, but forward stability. It's we see rewards that come when we are not first, not at the top, but when we are faithful. The Philadelphia church was faithful. That they did not deny his name. They kept the faith. They kept to his word. What little strength, what little dunamis they had, they used to progress the gospel. That verse eight, when it talks about the open door, that's often used in Pauline letters, uh, speci- or even specifically in Acts, actually. Uh, that open door was an example of an opportunity to share the gospel. That with a little strength, the Philadelphia church was able to share the gospel, to be able to see that they were being faithful. Now, what are the different rewards? We'll just breeze through these, because if we start to look, that Jesus says several times, you'll notice, because you've been faithful, he says, I will do this. And there's a a few of these I will statements throughout this. And so he focuses more on the rewards because guess what? Sometimes when we're in persecution and we're enduring patiently, like kids, we all need a little motivation. We need a little help to make it through. So here's what he says. The first thing that he says in verse um, nine is that we will recognize and others will recognize God's love for us. That those who are antithetical or against the gospel, those who were from the synagogue of Satan, which is strong verbiage to refer to other Jewish people that were not really following God. They said they were, but they weren't. They were whitewashed tombs. There were people who looked good doing religious activities on the outside, but on the inside, the, the, the God hadn't changed their lives. And so when that is the case, he says the synagogue of Satan, the Jews who are lying, those are the ones that they will bow down before you And they're not going to say, you were right. They're not going to say, oh my gosh, you know, we misunderstood. They're going to recognize how much God loved them. He loved loved his people. He said, they will acknowledge that I, Jesus, have loved you, the church. There'll be a recognition for us to see God's love and a recognition for God's love in others. Even when people are against what we believe, they'll see eventually. Number two, the idea that we have a crown of victory, that we didn't get the crown from from salvation, but he gave us victory that we could win as we run the race. And notice that Paul doesn't say we were called to win the race. He says, run the race, finish the race, be faithful to complete the race. He says that in Philippians 3. But the crown that we get, if we're faithful, no one can take it from us. We can hold on to it. No one can open what Jesus shuts. No one can shut what Jesus opens and no one can take the crown from us as long as we are faithful and we line up and we follow him and we walk forward day by day, choosing to walk towards him rather than away from him. Three, the idea that there will be a pillar, a pillar with um, inside the city. Now, Philadelphia, like California, was known as a place where there were a lot of earthquakes. And so there's some verbiage here where it talks about how because there were a lot of earthquakes in the area, They needed, you know, anything that was a a pillar of strength had a symbolic and a literal meaning to them. So he said, you will become pillars. That later on uh, in the 6th century uh, AD, Philadelphia was known as Little Athens because there were just so many temples. They're just, it was everywhere. But, But Jesus talking about how, listen, you will be a pillar in my temple. Galatians 2 talks about how there are people in the faith that were pillars in the faith. And because we, we have a picture here of pillars that these are actually from Philadelphia, uh, different pillars that have stood strong throughout the generations, throughout hundreds of years. 
And the idea is that in the midst of an earthquake, when the world is shaking around us, our foundation is rocky. We don't know what it looks like. There's crazy things going on in our country, crazy things going on in our world. When everything around us seems unstable, Jesus says, I'm going to help you to be a pillar in my church. I'm going to help you to be a pillar. Why? Because our foundation isn't on what the world or what the country or what other people think. Our foundation is in Jesus. That never changes. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. He's holy. He's true. What he says is true, and he is true. We're going to be pillars if we're faithful. And then the names, that pillars were often given names, or there are names of people who they wanted to honor. And so we see in verse 12 that he talks about, I will write on them, on these pillars, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, with the new Jerusalem, which is coming down, and I will also write my new name on them. That it's like Toy Story when uh, Woody has the name Andy written on the bottom of his shoe, of his boot, because we're his. That we have the name of Jesus written on us. So we don't even know what this new name is yet, but we do have God's name. And then why is it talking about the city, right? Like it's, that's kind of random. Well, Philadelphia was a city that had already had its name changed twice by this point in history. That one of the earthquakes wiped it out in 17 AD. And so because of that, uh, Caesar had given a lot of money. So they called it Neo-Caesarea, like the new Caesar um, or a new city based on Caesar. And then it was changed another time as well. And so imagine growing up in a city and imagine that your, your, your name of your city just got eradicated from history. That I, I grew up in Santa Clara and, you know, whenever I would see like someone who was like a Santa Clara University or Steve Nash was a famous basketball player who went to Santa Clara University. Uh, if you think about the 49ers currently play in Santa Clara. So there's just these, these things like, oh yeah, Santa Clara, that's awesome. Imagine if they just change it to like Billsburg. I don't know, something that just doesn't make sense. You're like, oh, where's, that's my history. That's where I'm from. If I can't anchor myself back to my past, then how am I going to be able to know where I've been? And that's hard. Imagine if Poway just got changed. And, and there was like, oh, I don't know what Poway is. Like, oh, but I know I've lived here. I know what this is like. That he puts a new name and he says, the city of my God. He says, the city of Philadelphia is not your name. It's God's city, the new Jerusalem. It's heaven. It's the new Jerusalem that will be the city that we have. Because any city we have here is temporary. God's city, his heavenly city, his eternal city is forever. So we sang out earlier that we talked about these different names that our heart will sing no other name than Jesus. So did we look at these rewards? The, the, the acknowledgement of God's love for us, the crown, the pillar, the names. Did Philadelphia get these rewards because they were the best church? No. Did they get these rewards because they were at the top of the church charts? No. Did they get these rewards because they were first and foremost and they won the race? No. They got rewarded because they were faithful. For us, if we only think we're going to follow Jesus because we want to be first or foremost, we only get into our schools to go to the best and to be the top, if we only get into our businesses or um, our pursue our calling only to be the best, if we fall anywhere short, then we might fail or we might, excuse me, think that we are failures because we're not the best. That's what our culture ingrains in us. Upward mobility, but we need to have forward stability that we are every day moving forward drawing closer to the Lord, and to be faithful in that. Philadelphia's good deeds weren't listed out. He just said, you've been faithful. 
because you've been faithful, here are my rewards. You know why? Because like kids, like us, the Church of Philadelphia just needs some motivation sometimes because they're enduring and they need to be reminded of that. Our main point that we've been talking about today is that God's rewards aren't for those at the top, but for those who are faithful to the end. God's rewards aren't for those at the top, but those who are faithful at the end. There's a story I want to share to close from the 2000 Sydney Olympics. In the year 2000, uh, this was kind of right before, like Michael Phelps was there, but this was before he won everything. And then in 2004, and then he won everything, everything in 2008. But 2000 was, you know, it was in Sydney, Australia. And there's a story that if you remember, it's 20 years ago now, which is crazy. But there was a story of a man named Eric Musambani Malonga. He was from Equatorial Guinea. And the story goes, and I think we have a picture of him that we'll, be, um, we'll put up there. How this story goes is that he was someone from, again, Equatorial Guinea. And he, was, he won a wild card invitation to be able to swim at the Olympics, which is an incredible opportunity. Here's the thing. He hadn't learned how to swim until earlier that year. He, he had an invitation, but his training was going to a hotel pool in his country because his whole country didn't have a 50-meter pool, which is the Olympic-sized pool. But there was a hotel that had a 13-meter pool, a 13-meter pool that was open between 5 a.m. and 6 a.m., three days a week, and that's the best he could do for his training. He would also try to go into rivers and try to swim upstream, and he, he was trying to learn, but he got an invitation in order to go to be part of the Olympics. And he shares in his story about how he gets to Australia and he walks into the first time to this incredible aquatic venue. And someone tells him, you know, he looks and he sees a pool that is four times almost bigger than a pool he'd ever seen before. And they say, that's, that's, that's the pool that you're going to swim in. And all of a sudden he gets really nervous, right? He's like, I've never done this before. So he starts to ask other swimmers in the aquatic center for advice. Some of them completely ignored him. Some of them were so busy looking at the top of the charts, they'd look down at someone else around them. That some of them were like trying to say, you know, I don't, I don't see a swimmer in you. But there was a coach from South Africa who's like, you know, I don't see a swimmer in you, but, le but let's work on him. Not his country, but he's like, let me, let me show you some breathing techniques. Let me show you how to, to, to do this. That... Eric had the same uh, rehearsal time as the U.S. team. So imagine going, being someone from Equatorial Guinea who's never seen a 50-meter pool, and then you're seeing people like Michael Phelps going back and forth. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know, he started just saying, I just, I just wanted to follow what they did. I wanted to see how they did this. I don't even know if this is how you swim. I don't really know very well. But, you know, like he just followed them did the best he could. So here's the thing. He was part of uh, one heat of the preliminaries for the 100 meters, right? And there were two other swimmers, because there's a lot of different heats. They get a lot of different people together. The best times will be able to progress into the next stage. He goes, and he's right at the edge. The other two swimmers are at his side. And he ju they jump. And he didn't jump. And he thought that he had missed it because they had, had whistled and said that there was a problem. After every time going three days a week uh, to a hotel, 13-meter pool, he thought he'd missed his shot. Swimming in a river to learn, he missed his shot. Well, it turns out the other two had false starts. They were disqualified. So now Eric is the only one racing in the pool. 
Now he talks about how he's really nervous because now he knows that everybody's watching him. But what does he do? He goes up to the edge. 48 seconds was the world record at the time. And he jumps in and he talks about how the first 50 meters, he's like, I did well. You can watch the video online. You could see he's, he's going fast, but you could tell he's expending a lot of energy. He gets to the other side of the pool and he t- turns and he comes back and he says, I'm in the middle of the pool on the way back and I'm absolutely exhausted. He says, I didn't care about my time. My only preoccupation was that I had to complete the race. I had to complete the 100 meter race. He's in the middle of the pool and all of a sudden he hears this huge aquatic center cheering for him. Because this is a story where he was 48 seconds. They found out he's the first time that he was able to be in this pool. They're cheering for him because he, like us, like kids, like the Church of Philadelphia, we all need a little motivation sometimes. He says, the crowd got me through it. And he keeps going and he keeps going. He finishes his time, not in a 48 seconds to win, the, to win anything, but in one minute and 52 seconds, the slowest time there'd ever been at the Olympics. You could say that he lost. But what did the records show? The records shows that he won that heat. The records show that that was his personal best. The records show that that was a national record for Equatorial Guinea. The records show that he was the first swimmer from Equatorial Guinea to compete in an international competition. So he won, not because he had the fastest time, but because he was faithful to finish the race. Imagine what would happen if he gave up. Imagine what would happen if we give up. That if we're not first, not best, not top, then we're losers. Don't tell that to Eric. Don't tell that to the Philadelphia church. Don't tell that to Jesus. Because we're not called to be the first We're called to be faithful. One step at a time, one day at a time, for many of us, one moment at a time to be faithful to what God has called us to do, to know his word, not deny his name, use whatever little strength we have to be sharing the gospel through the open doors that he provides, to become more like Christ every day. Because God's rewards aren't just for those who are at the top of the charts. It's for people who are faithful to the end. Father, we thank you for who you are, Lord, and I pray that you would encourage us today because if we look around, we may not feel like we're top or best or first at anything. But Lord, we thank you that you don't call us to only get rewards and only to get love and to only get affirmation and to only get approval by being the top of the first of the best. But Jesus, because you who knew no sin, who is holy and true, came down to earth, lived a perfect life, died a horrible death, was raised to eternal life. You've opened a door that cannot be shut. The door for an opportunity for a relationship with you. May we not look to other people around us and try to compete with others. May we fix our eyes upon you as the author and perfecter of our faith. May we walk out on water and take one step towards you. May we have forward mobility knowing we'll sink, we'll struggle. But we know that we're not called to be first. 
We're called to be faithful. We don't need to worry about other people around us, but our only preoccupation should be to complete this race. So encourage us this morning to get rid of a clip chart and to just go one day, one moment, one step at a time moving forward with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.